This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode 51. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump in to today's interview. My guest today is Spiro Veras. Spiro is a Florida-based attorney whose legal practice focuses on estate planning, probate, wills and trusts, and elder law. He is active with the Tampa Bay Estate Planning Council and the Academy of Florida Elder Law Attorneys, and he's licensed to practice law in Florida, Louisiana, and Texas. Spiro, thanks so much for joining us today to share advice and tips all about estate planning. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'd love to just start out just by learning a little bit more about your background. How did you get into practicing estate planning law? You know, it's it's one of those things you kind of fall into where you were destined to be. I I went to uh, Yale undergrad and uh, got a scholarship after I graduated to Tulane Law School. And I'd never even been to New Orleans before, but it was a you know, great deal. And uh, I graduated from Tulane, no idea what I wanted to do, but I was hired by a big New Orleans law firm. I was hired as a litigator and I spent several years as a litigator, made partner. And, um, and then I, I actually grew up in the Tampa Bay area. My parents were older, I was an only child and they were getting um, sick. So I, my firm had offices in Houston and New Orleans, and I convinced them to open a Tampa office. And uh, so after I got here, my parents' friends asked me, oh, Spiro, you're back. Can you do, I I had to take the Florida bar, of course, and they said, Spiro, can you write a will for us? And so I started doing it and and realized that I really liked it. And um, I was still with the New Orleans firm until 2005, when Hurricane Katrina shut down the firm for over a year. And, um, you know, we all scattered. The partners moved to New York, California, wherever they had a family that they could go to be with. I was already out and I had staff here in Tampa. So I had to very quickly um, set up my own company and uh, open my own accounts and get payroll going. And I did. And I have been um, in solo practice essentially ever since and uh, focused since then entirely on on estate planning and it started I, as soon as i came back to florida i started taking every class i could every seminar i could i loved it and it's not something that you dream of doing when you're in law school when you're in law school you dream of being in the courtroom with a really expensive suit and uh, you know wooing the jury with your with your uh, oratory but i discovered that i, I like the counseling aspect of it sitting with people, learning what their needs are, and trying to identify the best plan for them. 
did you take estate planning classes in law school or was this totally training on the job uh, when I you did. were first I getting did take estate planning classes in law school uh, they were required curriculum though it wasn't like i was taking the advanced electives because again i didn't think i was going to be writing wills for a living it didn't seem very exciting to 23 year old spiro <laughs> um but um but 53-year-old Spiro loves it. <laughs> so I've had to learn as, I, as I've gone along all the more advanced uh, aspects of estate planning. Excellent. Well, I'd love to dive into uh, some of what those um, aspects are that people should keep in mind. You know, estate planning is certainly one of those things that um, not everybody does it thoughtfully. Some people don't even do it at all. And it can really hit you when you need it. So, you know, I understand sort of the, the wisdom is uh, get things in place before you need it so that when you do need it, everything's already ready to go. What are the elements of a good estate plan in general, in your view? And like, maybe it'd be helpful just to make it concrete for folks to use maybe like three different personas to frame this. So maybe like, say, a 25-year-old, young urban professional, unmarried, no kids, you know, working a professional job, uh, but otherwise no real obligations, versus, say, a 40-year-old married professional has kids, versus, say, a 65-year-old, retiree, empty nester, et cetera. What are the elements of a good estate plan for, say, these these three type of personas? Well, at each stage, there are two fundamental segments to the estate plan. There is the, the portion of the plan that addresses what happens when you're alive, but unable to make decisions for yourself. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the portion that governs what happens after your death with your property and with your family. And um, for the 25-year-old, it's the while you're alive part that's going to be more often uh, the focus. Um, frankly, I don't get that many 25-year-olds coming to do their estate plan um, unless there are young parents, uh, because young, single 25-year-olds tend to feel like they're immortal and nothing will ever happen to them. Uh, but there are plenty of people also who have the wisdom to try and set up a plan before they need it, as you say. So for a 25-year-old, you're really looking at uh, uh, the long term. And the, the tw- that, that client is not going to know where they're going to be 60 years in the future at their likely life expectancy. So you're, you're, you're trying to set up something that will work, um, but you can't anticipate everything. So for, for example, a 25-year-old will typically name a parent as the executor, or in Florida, we call them a personal representative, the administrator of their estate a parent as uh, their agent on a durable power of attorney or as their healthcare surrogate or medical power of attorney as other states refer to it. Um, and those are the, those choices are going to shift over time, obviously. But the typical 25 year old is focused primarily on things like a living will designation of healthcare surrogate. In Florida, we combine those documents and it controls what happens to you medically and who can make decisions for you and speak with your doctors. Once we turn 18, our parents don't have those rights anymore. So I often have people in that 18 to 25 um, age, age group coming to me and asking, look, I want to make my mother my healthcare surrogate because I'm going in for some procedure and, you know, she's, she's, she needs to be able to make decisions while I'm, while I'm under anesthesia. Um, likewise, they'll frequently name a parent as their, um, as their agent on a power of attorney. So you know, if you're traveling abroad, your mom can pay your bills for you. Um, and, you know, they, they fear accidental death more than they fear um, the sort of natural death. Um, 
so that they'll make a parent, they'll, they'll do a will if they're going to go to, you know, uh, Patagonia for, for three weeks or something like that. And, you know, Lee and uh, they want to make sure they have something in place. When you get to be middle-aged, the 40 year old married um, professional with, with children, the focus usually there is the children and, um, and guardians for the children, for example, uh, most, most couples that come to me with, with young children, their, their primary decision is if something were to happen to both of them, who would be responsible for raising their kids? And then a separate, or it could be the same question, is who would maintain the couples or the, or the person's assets for the children until some specified age? And that age you know, can be 18, it can be 25, it could be 35, but the couple wants to make sure that um, that if something happens to them, the, the appropriate persons are in charge of their child's welfare and in charge of their child's uh, assets. And, you know, it's an interesting case because if you're a, if you're a young couple, most of us inherit from our parents or uh, from the previous generation when we're pretty old in, in the United States. I mean, you know, typically when I do a probate, the beneficiaries who are the children of the deceased are in their 50s or 60s or even 70s because the parents were in their 70s or 80s or 90s. Um, when you're a 40 year old person, you're, and if something were to happen to you soon, your children are going to inherit at a very young age. And sometimes people try and create trusts to protect uh, the assets until their children reach a level of maturity that we all take different, different times to reach. And then finally, you get the, the senior, a person in their 60s or 70s uh, who's retired or nearing retirement and the children are it's an empty nest. The children are out of college, out of grad school, married themselves. And uh, for that person, it's, again, you return to the advanced directives as a key issue. So who is going to make decisions for me if I can't make them or if my spouse can't make them for me? Who, are, who do I trust with those legal decisions, medical decisions, all kinds of decisions that may be, uh, as we face our mortality, we realize they may be looming. And then, of course, assets. By the age in their 60s or 70s, most people have um, have accumulated as much as they're they're going to accumulate in their work lives. And then it becomes an issue of how to preserve uh, the wealth that they've accumulated, how best and how least expect expensively to convey it to the people they want to inherit, um, and uh, and how much control they want to exercise over over what happens to their to their assets after their death. Got it. That's super helpful framing. And actually, I think the distinction you drew between how affairs are handled when the uh, principal is um, incapacitated versus when they pass is a really uh, important one. Do you find that clients of yours um, is the greater amount of focus on the incapacity scenario versus the passing away scenario or vice versa or about even? You know, I would say the incapacity scenario interests people more. I have, I yesterday had a, had a call with a, a, a couple and they came up with, I think, six backup um, healthcare surrogates, which in Florida is the person who can make medical decisions for you and can get your information. They have each other and each have six backups. They were really concerned 
with who would be making those decisions. Likewise, on their powers of attorney, they were really concerned. Their, their wills were simple, you know, we're leaving everything to our kids in equal shares, but they were very concerned with who would be making decisions for them. And they wanted to have complete control over that process. Interesting. So you alluded to probate a moment ago, and you know I understand that probate is really the heart of what drives estate planning, planning around probate. Um, what is probate at a high level? Can you kind of help us understand the N10 process, uh, ideally step by step? So like if, I'm, if I don't know about this and I just need an orientation, like when does it begin? What happens at each key step of the way? And when does it end? Assuming, say, the decedent has no will, no trust, no beneficiaries, no no estate plan. So in, in other words, you're fully in control of, probate is fully in control of you rather. Right. So if a decedent, if a person dies and has any assets in their name that don't have a beneficiary designation or a, a joint owner who would inherit the assets automatically at the time of death, those assets are in limbo because they're titled to a dead person. And if that person doesn't have a will, the laws of the state in which the person resided prior to their death will control who inherits their assets, or if anyone inherits their assets, because there are limits on how far the state will, the laws will go to family. So typically it's the next of kin, which varies from state to state, but the, you're gonna have to establish the family tree in order to determine who the next of kin is. In Florida, a person who knew the person well will be required to submit it, will submit what we call an affidavit of heirship, which establishes who the person's next of kin are, starting with their, were they married? Did they have children? Who were their parents? Are they alive or dead? Who were their siblings? Are they alive or dead? Who were their nieces and nephews? Who were their aunts and uncles? Who were their grandparents? Now in Florida, the analysis stops with grandparents. If you, if you can't find anybody, so if you were an only child of only children um, who have all predeceased you, at some point, the, 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 state, the estate will escheat to the state. It goes to the state of Florida. Um, if there, so there are situations, people are always afraid if I don't have a will, the state's gonna take my money. It can happen, it's rare. Um, but that's the first step in the probate process, establishing that family tree. Then the court has, you have to, someone has to petition the court to open a probate because we have to deal with these assets. And that person can be a family member, a person who's inheriting. It can be a creditor, a person who is owed money by the deceased. Um, and uh, uh, and that, that person asks the court to uh, determine the beneficiaries of the deceased estate. So that's the first step in an intestate probate, an intestate probate being one where the person never prepared a will. So uh, an interested party initiates that process, it sounds like? Correct. So that's the legal term is the interested party. It can be a family member, a beneficiary, or a creditor. And, um, and so then the court will have to appoint someone, usually the person whose request, who's petitioning for the probate, to, be, to serve as the personal representative of the estate. I use the term personal representative, which is used in Florida and many other states. Some states still refer to the administrator as an executor. Some states use the term administrator, but it's all the same thing. It's the person who is appointed by a judge to administer the estate of the deceased. 
And although the processes vary between states, there are some things that are, that are similar. Florida has a very formalistic probate process. There are states that have simplified probates. Florida is, is, is rather formal. And so in, in this state, personal representative is appointed by a court. Typically, we'll have to post a bond, which is like an insurance policy to make sure they don't make off with the assets of the estate or leave creditors unpaid. And then the court will issue to the, to the personal representative what's called letters of administration. It's a misleading. It's a deceptive term because it's one piece of paper, but it's the letters of administration. And, um, and that allows the letters of administration essentially say that the administrator can do anything that the deceased can do with his assets. He's treated by law as if he were the deceased. So now you have somebody who can, who can liquidate uh, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and sell real estate and um, marshal it all together. As how, does, as how does the court select this person if there had been no prior instructions or indication by the deceased? Um, like, how do they make sure that person is fair, so to speak? That's an excellent question. And the way that Florida does it is a majority of the beneficiaries choose um, they, it, it's by essentially a majority vote of the, of the people who are inheriting. So it happens frequently. And there are some large estates where it's a big fight. Um, the, it can happen, for example, in one of the cases in which I'm involved, a, a relatively wealthy man died quite young in his fifties and he was survived by three minor daughters who were in the custody of his ex-wife from whom he was very estranged. His daughters nominated their mother as the administrator of his estate. So his family was, was very upset by that nomination because they hadn't, you know, spoke, he hadn't spoken to his ex-wife in, in years and they were, they were in bad terms to say the least. And, um, and they tried to fight it, but the court ultimately determined that even though she was the last person on earth that the deceased would have wanted administering his estate and taking over his company and, 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 and you know, his house and all of his assets, and taking, she made herself, you know, president of his company because she she now controlled all the shares as the personal representative. And um, there was nothing that could be done. Florida law is absolute. The the beneficiaries determine who will administer the estate. There are limits. A person who's been convicted of a felony cannot. A person who cannot be bonded cannot. Um, so there are limits. Uh, a person has to be a resident in Florida of the state of Florida, um, or a, a family member. A family member. Can, can serve even if they live outside the state, but if uh, a non-family member has to be a resident of the state. But other than those limits, the, the, the judge does not make a who's best for the estate determination. He's guided by what the beneficiaries choose. Got it. So, and then what happens after that person's appointed um, and begins that, that process? Right, the first step is to publish notice to creditors in the newspaper. Um, you want to do that as quickly as possible after the appointment, because that is the primary delay that people don't like about, about probate. In Florida and many states, anyone who was a creditor of the deceased or of his estate has three months from the date of first publication of notice of creditors in which to file a claim for what they were owed. It's almost like a bankruptcy. So you publish a notice and all the creditors have three months to come in and file claims. You can't, though, um, avoid creditors you know exist by simply putting a notice in the, in, the, in the legal notices section of the paper. If you know of a creditor, mm. you have to serve them by certified mail with a notice to creditors as well. So mm. you, can't you have to serve all known creditors 
and publish for all unknown creditors. And they have those three months to file their claims. In the meantime, while you're waiting for the claims to be filed, the personal representative can marshal the assets, open an account in the name of the estate, sell real estate, sell stocks and mutual funds, consolidate the assets in one place is usually what happens. There are exceptions, like for example, in the example I just gave, the, the, the ex-wife was running the business because it wasn't, you know, she was gonna convey the business intact to her daughters. Um, the, uh, it, so those three months are used for marshalling the assets of the estates, inventorying them. So if, if you have to get an inventory of the property of the deceased cars, uh, the contents of their homes, and all of that if the evaluation. So you, there is work to be done in, during those three months. At the end of the three months, uh, the creditors have to be addressed. Anybody who filed claims, the personal representative has to get in touch with them and figure out whether uh, they can try and settle the claim. There is also an option where if the personal representative doesn't feel that the claim is valid, uh, she can object to the, to the claim. And uh, in which case, that puts the creditor in a position where they have to sue the estate um, to try and collect on the claim. Um, so that's the kind of the, the creditor aspect of it. At that point, also the personal representative has to submit an inventory to the court showing what assets uh, she was able to uh, uh, identify and marshal, what their date of death values were. Um, and, um, and then after all the creditors are settled and um, all the assets have been, have been, have been inventoried, the, only then can the personal representative distribute the assets according to uh, the inheritance laws of, of, of the state. Got it. So when you add up all these actions that have to occur, how long does the probate process take end to end? Um, and I know it can vary. There can be short ones and really long ones. Um, but what have you seen in practice? As a practical matter, um, because of the three months, you're never going to go under three months. You're not going to go under four months because uh, we file a petition. It has to be reviewed by the probate clerk. It has to be reviewed by an intake attorney, then sent to the judge who also reviews it. So that can take three to four weeks. So the personal representative might be appointed a month after we open the, we file the probate. Then we have to wait the three months. Then it's going to take at least a month uh, to, um, to, deal with the creditors and make the distributions to the beneficiaries. Assuming everything goes right, probate will take five to six months um, in, in Florida, typically. It can take longer, but it really can't go below five months. Got it. So that's best case scenario. And, you know, I guess in a bad case, it can stretch out for years, I imagine. It can. I mean, there are scenarios where, for example, a uh, piece of property, so the deceased owns something that's not readily marketable, and so that can cause delays. Or uh, the deceased was involved in litigation, and the personal representative has to keep the estate open until the, the other litigation is resolved. In fact, in that situation, the personal representative is usually substituted into the litigation for the deceased. So there are, there are cases where it can drag on for years. I have probates that are open now that, uh, that go back 10 years because of litigation in that instance. Got it. Okay. So um, one of the, you know, big incentives for having a good estate plan is that, you know, you can accelerate or sidestep probate um, and the attendant costs that are associated with that. Because as I understand it, probate is costly. It's not a free um, process. Can you comment on for, you know, 
for folks who do not have a good estate plan, how costly is probate and what are the, what are the sources of that cost? So um, in, in Florida, probate fees are set by statute. Some states you can charge whatever you want. In Florida, you can charge whatever you want, but there's a, there's a presumed reasonable fee that you are automatically sort of entitled to. And uh, that fee is based on a percentage of the value of the estate. It starts with a minimum fee of $1,500. So you can have an estate, and there are estates that have zero assets, but there's a reason why you need to open a probate. Even though there's zero assets, the personal representative is gonna have to pay the lawyer at least that $1,500. Beyond that, it's basically 3% of the value of the estate up to a million dollars, 2.5% between a million and 3 million, 2% 2% between 3 million and 5 million. And it's a declining percentage above that that I don't have memorized because I rarely have an estate that large that the person has not done a real estate plan for. So, uh, you know, God willing, they come as often as possible, but um, so it can be substantial. Even just a million dollar estate, you're talking about a $30,000 fee to the lawyer. And um, uh, it, the lawyer does a lot of work in probate, but uh, there are certainly ways to avoid that. There are also court costs that typically, court costs, filing fees, certified mail charges, publication of notice to creditors, posting a bond, can run over a thousand dollars for a probate. And those are those are all in addition to the fees. In addition, if you don't have a will, the petition to ger- determine beneficiaries and all of that first stage is not is ex- is excluded from the statutory fee. That's extra. That's an extraordinary fee. If creditors file separate suits against the estate, that's another extraordinary fee where the lawyer is supposed to uh, charge hourly. And uh, dealing with real estate, also extraordinary. So there's, it can run up quite a high bill if you don't have a good estate plan in place. All right, gotcha. Um, if For a decedent that does have their estate go through probate, what are have you what ways have you seen that probate can actually cause distribution outcomes that the decedent clearly would not have wanted or expected. I was just wondering if you'd comment on uh, basically how intestacy laws, while they're meant to sort of simulate what the state's best guess is in terms of how the decedent probably would have, you know, sort of air quotes, uh, probably would have wanted their estate distributed, how that can actually get screwed up uh, if you know, in, in certain cases. I was wondering if you comment, maybe you have examples from, from prior experience. Absolutely. Uh, one example that comes to mind uh, is uh, a woman that had um, MS. And when she was diagnosed and became and started to become disabled by this terrible disease, her husband abandoned her. He left. No one knows where he went. Um, he never reached, reached out to her. But she, was, she had no assets. She, she was unable to work. She ended up moving with her parents, and um, and shortly before her death, she was badly injured in an accident, and uh, she was able to hire uh, uh, her. Actually, I should say her mother was able to hire a personal injury lawyer um, to pursue a wrongful death case. She actually died from the accident rather than from the MS, and. Um, since she was dead, had to open an estate for her and the personal representative pursued the case. The problem was she was still married to the guy who had abandoned her decades earlier. And under the laws of intestacy of the state of Florida, he was her sole heir. She was a childless person with a spouse. 
So under Florida law, he was her sole heir. She never thought she needed a will because she was she had nothing. She was on disability because of her disease and never expected that she would end up inheriting her. She would end up with an estate with a half million dollar uh, wrongful death judgment that ended up getting paid out to her good for nothing husband who she never divorced. Um, so that's one example. The case of the the gentleman with the with the ex-wife is another example. I mean, his ex-wife is still running his company. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure if he had taken the time to prepare a will, and it remains a mystery why he didn't, uh, you know, that would not have been the outcome that he would have predicted. So you really, even if you have nothing, you should at least have a will so that the person you hate most in the world is not, is not uh, in charge of every, your family and everything that you own um, after your death. You never know. Okay, that, perfect. That's a, a, a real rallying cry to make sure you at least do the basics, at least have a will, um, and appreciate your sharing the examples. And that's actually a really good segue into wills. I'd love to you know, get um, uh, some of your deeper thoughts on this. So I think most people will intuitively understand that a will is a document. You, know, you write specifying how you want your belongings and estate to be distributed when you die. At what point in one's life does it make sense to write a will and have a will? You know, in my opinion, you should write a will early that 25 year old should do a will you don't want to be intestate because we don't have in the united states sort of a central registry of family and there 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 are states in which it's much harder to prove for example in some states that affidavit of heirs that says your family tree can't be written by one of your heirs it has to be prepared by a third party who's familiar i mean what third party is going to know you know my grandmother's name um, that, that, that can be a real roadblock to establishing who your heirs are. Again, there's a possibility in many states that your, heir, your estate ends up going to the state rather than to who you want it to go to. And many of us aren't really that close with our families too. I mean, this, uh, our society is, is, is somewhat different than more traditional cultures where people's friends are their family. And, um, and so that you don't necessarily want your next of kin to be making decisions for you or uh, or inheriting what you've worked for. Do you recommend that, like, pretty much as soon as you reach majority age, 18 in most uh, states, that uh, that you write a will then, even if you have nothing? I recommend it like, for using the case of that um, the, the woman for, as an example. I mean, she had nothing. A will would have been helpful and uh, would have avoided another outcome. Now, as a practical matter, I can count the number of 18-year-olds that I've written wills for on one hand. Yeah, most of them can't even get through the DMV. (laughs) (laughs) And usually their parents drag them kicking and screaming to my office to do, you know, a basic estate plan. Um, So it's just not something that's on your mind at that age. At 25, you start to get a few people in. Primarily, though, it's not the example that I gave earlier. It's young married couples in the 20s they had a baby and now all of a sudden it's like oh no i don't want you know your mother to have custody of our of our baby if something happens and there's this sort of that's that dynamic but they need it they do need it once they have a child it becomes increasingly important okay perfect so once you have a will how does the probate process now shift uh what steps of the process change and and how? how how is it accelerated it's, it's the, the initial stage is simplified and accelerated, as you say. The, the, the will establishes who will be the personal representative. It doesn't matter what your heirs think. If you say this person is going to be the administrator of my estate, 
your beneficiaries don't have a vote on this. The, um, the other difference is that you don't have to establish the family tree. It, the, the people that you say in your will are going to inherit are the, are the people who are going to inherit. The judge doesn't care what your family tree is or whether your grandmother died in you know, 1957. The, 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 none of that is relevant at that point. So it really does simplify the process. You file the petition, then the intake attorney doesn't have to go through this. Oh, wait, they do the analysis correctly um, thing. And it speeds up that initial, you know, that initial period, probably that month that I said, that's usually when there's no will. If there's a, I mean, that's usually when there's a will. If there's no will, you're looking at two or three months probably to establish. I have, I have one now where I have been, I'm the administrator because the person died. He was an only child. He was never married, no children. And uh, his condo association basically hired me to, to administer his estate because he had died and the condo fees were being debited from his account. And then they ran out of money in the account. And, uh, and so they said, somebody has to do this probate for this guy because the condo's in limbo. And um, I've had, I've spent a year trying to establish this family tree because I found people on one side of the family, but they know none of the people on the other side of the family. And so I finally found the other people. So you can really shorten that initial period down to three to four weeks if you have a will. Then, um, obviously the, the judge's job is easier. You, you, you just have to follow what the will says. All the court is looking at is to, to confirm that the personal representative is, is executing the will as, the, as it was written. It simplifies the process. That's when you can do a five or six month probate. If you have no will, you're not going to do it in five or six months. Are, are you still having to do the three month notice to creditors? Even with a will? Yeah. You do. You do. Um, that's, that's unavoidable if you, if you, if you, unless you have a trust. Um, and, you, and they get paid out, the creditors get paid out first before the remainder gets uh, distributed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that can really cause unintended consequences. So, um, for example, the way that wills are interpreted, you have special bequests. So you say, you know, I'm leaving my car to my son and uh, $50,000 to my daughter and, um, and uh, all the residue of the estate to my spouse, um, which is everything else. And you think your estate's big, but b because creditors get paid first, the, if, if the estate is depleted, your spouse could end up inheriting much less than your daughter. You know, so you could end up with, you had half a million dollars, but you ended up in a nursing home that was a gigantic creditor in your estate. And uh, your son gets the car, your daughter gets the 50,000 and your spouse ends up with, you know, $10,000. So creditors can affect the outcome and can thwart the, 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 the deceased's intentions. So for folks who, you know, write their own will themselves, uh, you know, this is not uncommon. Um, obviously, it's, it's, you could probably do it more accurately if you have legal counsel representing you. But, you know, a lot of people will write their own will, maybe even just on a handwritten on a piece of paper, um, just various, various ways people do it. What do folks need to know to make sure that they actually have a valid will in terms of the legally required formalities? Um, what are key gotchas or issues that uh, commonly trip up people who are writing their own wills? So that's an excellent question. Um, you really need to know the formalities in your state because they vary dramatically. So for example, in Louisiana, what you described, a holographic will, one written in your own handwriting and signed by you is valid. In Florida, it is totally not valid. Um, in Florida, every will has to be signed in front of two witnesses who are disinterested parties. If also, if the will is not 
self-proving, in other words, there wasn't a notary involved with certain other formalities, the witnesses have to physically appear at the courthouse to swear that they saw the person sign the will. So those formalities need to be followed. And the, obviously, if you do a will with an attorney, they will be followed in all, most cases. <laughs> and, um, um, and so th that's a critical part. Uh, another thing that, that um, an, an, is an issue that there are many reasons to, to, to see a lawyer. But I'll give you an example that's sort of Florida specific. Florida, as many people know, has tremendous homestead protection. You can, you can owe a fortune in debts. Your Florida homestead cannot be attached by your creditors. And there's no limit on the value. I mean, I, I, you know, it can be multi-million dollar home. If it's your Florida homestead, the only, the only, the only entity that can touch it is the IRS, the federal government, because the I was about to say, yeah, they, they'll go after you for every last dime. Yeah, they can, they can bust the homestead, <laughs> but, but any other creditor can. So OJ Simpson famously used that technique when, after his in-laws, ex-in-laws and the Goldman family got a humongous judgment against him in Los Angeles. He sold everything he had and bought a really expensive house in Miami and declared himself a Florida resident and he was untouchable, even for the 17 years that he was in prison in, in Nevada because he had the intention of returning to Florida. Florida courts refused to allow a lien to attach to his house. The, um, uh, and that exemption passes beyond the grave. You can owe a fortune in debts, drop dead, and as long as you leave your home to your, heir, to your heirs at law, family members, your creditors can't attach it in the probate. It passes exempt. Except if your will says, I direct that my home be sold and the proceeds be distributed to my children. People like that because your kids don't like each other. They don't get along. You don't want them co-owning a piece of real estate. So people often will write that into their wills. Bad idea. If you do that, it becomes non-exempt and your creditors can grab that asset. And uh, so that's, some, that's one of the reasons, obviously speaking to a lawyer is important. Um, those sorts of gotchas that you might not think about um, are very serious. Another, possible, another issue is if there's any possibility whatsoever that somebody could challenge your will, you need to go to a lawyer. Because when I, I, I've had to testify dozens of times at this point defending wills that I wrote, mm -hmm. basically saying, no, grandma knew what she was doing when she disinherited you. She was totally competent and uh, you know, nobody was unduly influencing her. I met with her privately. She told me her wishes. She told me her reasons. And, and the case basically gets thrown out because I don't, I don't have an interest in the outcome of this. I'm just telling you what happened. Hmm. Um, so that's critical. Is there any possibility whatsoever? I, I know I like doing things from home too. I mean, I shop online, you know, I book my travel online. It's worth putting some clothes on and going to the lawyer's office <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. Gotcha. Hey, I was just curious, you know, in the, in the um, kind of example that you just gave there, do you recommend that those type of conversations typically be like even recorded? I know they don't have, um, uh, they're not sort of evidentiarily required in court, but they may have some persuasive authority. Do you recommend that these type of meetings be recorded so that uh, it's, it, you have more than just somebody's word, even if it's an, a neutral attorney? Yes, if there's some sort of, um, sort of extreme deviation from what the expected uh, uh, distribution would be. I usually do uh, like recording it. People don't feel comfortable with it, and so I won't do it. But there are some situations 
and you know, I consider prenuptial agreements part of an estate plan sometimes because we most people don't stay married to the same person for the rest of their lives. So they they have kids with one person, then they get divorced, and they marry somebody else, and they still want their kids to inherit. So they do prenups as part of their estate plan. And uh, I almost all I do like to record those if there's a substantial estate because that's always an issue that's brought up. And I'm not a divorce lawyer, but I I hear the horror stories. Um, so if you, if I can do a video, that's, that's great. As I said, for, for normal estate plans, unless there's a, a deviation from what would be expected where say, you know, um, you're suddenly changing an estate plan that was in place for a long time and a child who was expected to, uh, inherit equally is being excluded. Obviously you'll tell me the reasons I'm going to put them in my notes. They're going to be in my file, but having you saying it on video is very persuasive. Got it. And I know this is specific to Florida because of the example that you just gave, but in the example of like the homestead having almost, um, you know, absolute, an absolute shield in, um, in, in probate, if the, you mentioned if the will directs the home to be sold, not exempt, if the beneficiaries just independently, separate and apart from the will, sell it later, that would be still exempt, right? Because it had already passed. Correct. The way the Florida law sees it, and it's like this, there are textbooks and books, treatises written on Florida homestead. This is an issue that's fascinated Florida lawyers for, for decades. Um, the way the current understanding is from Florida Supreme Court, the uh, stands, the, the, the homestead, using the terms that they use in their opinions, inured to the heirs at the moment of the decedent's death. So it went, never went through probate. It was theirs at the instant the parent died, typically it's the parent. And so it was never available to creditors. It became theirs and the creditors have no claim against them for it. Makes sense. Okay. Um, and then more broadly, are there is there any other advice that you have um, or common problems that you see when uh, people try to draft their own estate planning documents, whether it's, you know, a... Um, um, a will or or other types of documents? Yes. Um, the uh, one example, um, uh, well, uh, I've seen so many examples of incomprehensible wills <laughs> that we've I've had to sit there with the judge and try and figure out what this says. Um, but one that we recently wrapped up was uh, a, a decedent had drafted as he was, he was dying. He had cancer and he knew that he was dying. And uh, for some reason, did his own will, even though he owned quite a bit of real estate and had some substantial assets and was living with his girlfriend. And he said the will had special bequests and it said all the property located at say one, two, three main street to my girlfriend. And the next bequest said the property located at one, two, three main street in equal shares to my children. So, you know, it was hard to understand what that meant. My, the inf what I was able to infer was that he meant the contents of the property to his girlfriend, that's where they lived together, and the real estate itself to, um, to his children. But that's that sort of in ambiguity. I mean, but for the fact that the girlfriend consented to that interpretation of the will, the court would have had to give her the house because all the property located at 123 Main Street means everything, including the real estate. And um, so it was only because of her, you know, wish to honor 
desire to honor her, his wishes, that we were able to actually clear that up in a way that everybody was happy with. But that sort of mistake happens all the time. You have to be very careful about clarity. People frequently do their wills online and they're being interviewed and they'll see that the question usually is, who do you want to inherit the residue of your estate? And they leave it blank because they don't, they don't think they have any residue. Um, the residue is a legal term for everything else. And, um, and so that is a big question to leave blank. Um, so you have to be very, don't leave anything blank. If you're doing it online, <laughs> there's a reason why they're asking you that question. Um, but it, 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 they're just very common problems that lead to a big mess in interpreting. That's, it's, it's really strongly advisable to just see a lawyer for a will. It's a very important document. On this topic, how do you, um, how do you evaluate a good lawyer for somebody who's not a lawyer? It's tough. You know, I, I, um, when I was a litigator, I was a very sort of kindly litigator. I was not a pit bull. And, um, and you know, there were other lawyers at my firm who were pit bulls. They were so aggressive. They were ready to go to battle from the moment, you know, that they, they walked in the courtroom. I've always been a, you get more flies with honey kind of a guy. Than, <laughs> and also it just doesn't suit my personality. And, um, um, and so it, a lot of the good, a lot of, there are a lot of good lawyers. I mean, most lawyers are good. And I mean, there are exceptions, but most lawyers know what they're doing. Most estate planning lawyers know what they're doing. It's about a personal fit. It does, does this person, is this the kind of person, because you're going to have to reveal to me all your personal business. Like, why are you disinheriting a child? Or, or why, what are your goals? What are your real goals in life? What do you want to happen when you retire? And all of that. So you have to have a good personal relationship. I consider most of my clients friends. We spend so much time together. Typically, an, an estate planning intake appointment takes two hours. I mean, it's a lot of time. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's all about personal fit. Obviously, there are, there are credentialing. You want someone who's active in organizations. Um, like I, I've become an estate planning geek over the last 20 years. I mean, I just, I joined every committee, every, I'm, you know, every, every group. Um, and I'm fascinated by sort of the more esoteric questions, but also, you know, developments in the law. And, um, and that's, that's typically, I mean, I, I consider that a good sign <laughs> to that you actually, you know, I would like my doctor, for example, to kind of be interested in medicine. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think it's good. Uh, you should look for somebody who's, who's involved in, in, in law. And then, yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, so that was a great, um, I think some great advice about wills. I wanted to shift to talking about trusts. Um, at the risk of sounding obvious, what is a trust? How does it differ from a will? Um, how should people think about the differences in goals between setting up a trust versus just having a will? Like, how do the goals differ between these two instruments? So there are a number of different types of trusts. But in, in terms of your question, I think we're talking about what we call a revocable trust, also called a living trust. Uh, a, a, a grantor trust, for example, another word. The term means uh, is, it's an entity that you create while you're alive, that serves as the owner of um, your assets. And uh, it can, um, it's, it, it, in terms of taxes and for most legal purposes, a revocable trust is disregarded. So it's not 
protection against creditors. It's not a separate entity in the, sen in the sense that an LLC or a corporation is a separate entity. But for purposes of probate, it, it, it is very effective. What it does is because the trust owns assets, you, when you create a trust, um, one of the important parts after you create a trust is putting assets in the trust or making them go to the trust on your death. If you would fund it properly, if the, if the trust either owns or will own upon your death all of your assets, you, there is no need to probate your estate because you may be dead or I'll make myself the dead person. <laughs> I put everything in my house, my mutual funds, my, my, the stock in my corporation. I retitled that all to the Spiro Veris Revocable Trust. Then I die, Spiro Veris Revocable Trust still exists. There's nothing that's titled to a dead person at that point. And say my, my, my successor trustee, whoever's named in my trust to take over the reins upon my death or disability, can take over right away. Give a death certificate to the bank, give a death certificate to the brokerage that has my mutual funds, and can immediately liquidate them. Can record a death certificate in the official records and immediately sell my house. So the trust avoids probate, avoids the fees associated with probate. I mean, if you have a trust, you don't really a fully funded trust. You may not need a lawyer at all, your, your heirs upon your death. They can administer it themselves. They can hire a lawyer if they want help, but they don't necessarily, there's no court proceeding that's required. So it, it's, it's primarily structured to, uh, to avoid uh, uh, probate. Now, that being said, I like to do a, 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 a probate also just for the creditor protection because by publishing notice to creditors you block any creditors from coming along later so it's it's worth possibly that's sort of zero value probate where it's fifteen hundred dollars it may be worth the fifteen hundred dollars for peace of mind purposes because by publishing notice to creditors if they don't file a claim in three months they're forever barred from pursuing the estate or the heirs i see so it is um if you have a validly implemented trust it is not a technical requirement to go to ever set foot or file any paper in a probate court, but it might be strategically wise to do that for the creditor reason you just mentioned. Is that an accurate summary? Correct. Yes, that's right. Gotcha. Um, I was curious when you mentioned that it's important to have you know fund the trust um, to validate that it's a um, a properly created trust. Does that mean that like I have to go and re-record? real estate at the county clerk's office in the trust name. I have to go and um, send certified um, documentation to my mutual fund company to retitle that account in the trust name, et cetera. Or um, do I just set my beneficiary to be the trust? Um, or in the case of real estate, do I really need to retitle that that asset, et cetera? Will that actually invalidate the trust if I don't do those things, et cetera? It'll reduce the value of the trust if you don't do those things. Because when I do a trust, um, when I create a trust for a person, I also create a, 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 what we call a pour over will. A pour over will is a will, the beneficiary of which is the trust. So in case I forgot to put something in my trust while I was alive, the pour over will will probate it into my trust. And there, there are unexpected things that can happen. You know, the Alanis Morissette, the guy wins, wins the lottery and dies the next day. He's not going to have time to fund his trust. I mean, so he, he might have had a perfectly funded trust, but he won the lottery. You need a probate to get that money into the trust. So um, the the um, but any assets that you are aware of should go into the trust. 
For a long time here in Florida, we were very scared about putting homesteads in trust because we were afraid of, of impairing that absolute protection against predators. But there have been statutes enacted by the Florida legislature establishing that the homestead is protected even if it's an irrevocable trust. And there have been cases in the Florida Supreme Court repeatedly that, that achieved the same, that, that said the same thing. Um, there was one unfortunate opinion out of a bankruptcy court in Miami that suggested otherwise, but virtually, uni virtually unanimous in, Florida, in the Florida legal system that the trust, it's, it's wise to put the home into the trust. And um, other real estate as well. And typically the lawyer who prepares the trust um, should convey all real estate owned by the grantors into the trust. I mean, the lawyer should prepare the quick claim deeds, get them recorded. Um, now, you have to be careful about trusts because there are, I've seen many, I've had to do many probates where a couple was invited to some dinner at BT Bones by, by a lawyer, you know, free dinner and learn about trusts and they paid, you know, $1,500 for a trust or some, you know, relatively small amount for a trust and they, um, uh, the lawyer just it was a template trust, you know, you fill out, you fill out a form, they get it ready for you to sign, you go to the office and sign it, and you give them, give them the money, and, and that's it. They didn't put any assets in the trust, and they weren't instructed to put any assets in the trust. The person dies, and then, you know, the daughter comes along and says, wait a minute, why do I have to pay, pay you to do a probate? Um, your mom's assets weren't in her trust. Um, so it's important, because you end up in a position where you have to probate anyway, and you pay a, a substantial amount of money to create a trust everything should go in. It is a hassle. And a lot of people don't do it until they're older because they don't want the hassle of putting your home in your trust and your brokerage account. Now you hit on something which is actually a, a good strategy. Rather than retitling your accounts, you can make them payable on death to the trust or, or name the trust as the beneficiary of your IRA, for example. And that avoids having to change title on things. It just, you know, those things, instead of paying out to people, will pay out to your trust. Got it. So it sounds like the really right way to do it is to actually go through the hassle at some on some time scale to officially retitle assets like your bank brokerage accounts, your real estate, etc. Um, that would be the really right way to do it. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's fair. Absolutely. Well, how do you handle you know personal property? Like, I want if if I as a um, um, the principal want to put literally everything I own in a trust. How do I put my iPhone in a trust? I never titled that anywhere. Um, so that, you know, maybe I have a strategy of like, I want to put a nominal amount in the trust. So to, um, to satisfy the formalities and then I'll retitle my home later. Or I'll do the, the bank and brokerage accounts later, but I just want to make sure my trust is up and running. Maybe I have a, a pour over will, uh, as well. So I'm, you know, guarded on that side. How do I, um, verify that uh, uh, I can fund the trust with some, at least something nominal, even if it's personal property, how would I actually, the mechanics, how would I do that? When I prepare a trust, uh, like a revocable trust, I always also include an assignment of all property to the trust. So personal property can be conveyed uh, because it doesn't have titles. So it just uh, any, you can just say, I'm putting all my personal property in the trust. It doesn't require any registration, doesn't require recording. And so that, that basically says all property that I can, I can retitle, I am retitling to my trust. And that's, that's enforced by the courts. Basically, the courts will say that property is in the trust. And that would be sufficient, right, to um, at least create a valid trust if I just have that clause in the trust agreement itself? 
Absolutely. Yes, it, it, that'll do it. Okay. For somebody who did that approach and did not go through the hassle, uh, at least when they were alive, of retitling um, uh, you know, more consequential assets like your home or your brokerage accounts, but they did have a pour-over will that said, upon my death, anything that I may have missed, anything I may have missed should automatically get poured over into the trust. Does that person in their lifetime need to um, go through that hassle of retitling in that case, or does that pour-over will pretty much guard them? By doing it that way, by not retitling during your lifetime or making accounts payable on death, with not can't do that with real estate, but with uh, bank and brokerage accounts, um, you will still have to probate those assets after the person dies. So you're not going to avoid that dreaded 3% <laughs> that the lawyer gets. And so that that's most people who come to me, most people who opt for a trust um, with me do so because they don't want their children to have to pay some lawyer $30,000 to probate their estate. So by not funding the, um, the trust during their lifetimes, they are, they are not achieving that goal. Mm, I see. Uh, gotcha. Okay. So it, it's a cost consideration, not a sort of legal impact or legal consequences decision. It's really a cost consideration. Primarily cost, also the time delays. You also have a situation where like, for example, I mean, using myself as I usually with clients use myself as the dead person and just tend to, to avoid jinxing anything. Um, and so I own a law firm. It's a, it's a corporation. If I have my a shares titled to myself, it could take five months before my personal representative can sell the firm, do anything with the firm. That's a long time to have nobody uh, you know, able to, to manage the, and when my personal representative is not a lawyer, he can't do anything. He has to, he has to sell it right away. So that's, that's an issue you want. Um, the delay can sometimes be a big consideration and a big motivating factor for the trust in addition to the cost. Okay, cool. So tactically, how, how do you actually create a trust? Like what are the, what are the key legal required, legally required formalities to have a valid trust and, you know, what mis common mistakes do you see people sometimes get in trouble to when it comes to having a valid trust? Again, uh, one of the things that, um, that people will say in their trust document is that everything's going to be sold. Um, again, if your homestead's in the trust, don't say that. <laughs> you don't want to say that because you want the home to go. Um, you don't know what might happen the last years before your death. Nursing homes are very expensive. Um, and so you, you can, and it becomes a big creditor issue. Um, so that's one, one thing to look for is uh, don't require immediate liquidation of assets. Um, give as much flexibility as possible to your successor trustee. Uh, I, I, I give them absolute and uncontrolled discretion. That doesn't mean that they can run off to Tahiti with all of your money and not do what the trust says. It just means you don't second guess their decisions um, because every beneficiary thinks that they, oh, you sold, the, sold, sold dad's shares on the wrong day creates problems and you want you want the trustee to have as much discretion as possible in administering the trust and, and as much flexibility um, in administering the trust as possible. So you, like, for example, sometimes people will have a, uh, a, a one child who they feel is not responsible with money. So in their trust, they'll say, let's say they have two children. So they say son A gets his half of my estate outright. The trustee shall hold the other half of my estate in trust for son B um, for the rest of his life. 
uh, and then they'll make Sun A the trustee for Sun B. Uh, and that's a nightmare. So <laughs> because you're going to be having your brother calling you asking for money uh, for, you know, for the rest of his life. So, you know, you want to give the trustee the flexibility to be able to resign and say, you know what, we're making this bank your trustee. You can deal with them. And uh, that sort of thing. You want to create as much flexibility because trusts, trusts can do a lot of wonderful things. I mean, if you have, say, a disabled child, you can have their assets be governed by a supplemental needs trust that allows them to qualify for benefits without being disqualified because they inherited something from their parents. There are a number of things you can do, but you want to give the trustee the flexibility to do all of those things. And so I build in as many of those provisions as I can. Got it. What are legally required formalities that folks will need to observe? In Florida, the trusts are um, have the same signing formalities as the will. You need two disinterested witnesses and a notary. And it, the trust is an unusual document. It's like a contract between the grantor and the trustee. It's a trust agreement. So you, the, the trustee is agreeing to maintain the assets of the grantor according to the terms of the trust. And the terms change. When the person, when the grantor is alive, it's one set of terms. When the grantor is dead, it's a different set of terms. And um, the trustee will, um, both of them have to sign. So you can't just have the grantor sign. Usually the grantor and the trustee are the same person or people, but if they're not, you, you got to get your, your trustee into the room to sign that he agrees to all this. So that's, that's a very important formality. Otherwise, the same as wills. Got it. Okay, cool. So we talked a little bit about how trust can help protect wealth by reducing probate costs, by averting, you know, um, sort of beneficiary, so to speak, uh, infighting. Um, but I also understand that trusts have um, maybe a, an, an advantage over uh, wills in that they can provide anonymity. They can help minimize estate taxes. I was wondering if you could um, comment on how a trust can accomplish these things and why a will can't accomplish the same. Sure. So traditional revocable trusts um, really are only able to avoid probate and speed, speed everything up. But trusts come in a number of different flavors. <laughs> and so uh, irrevocable trusts are especially powerful because when you convey something to an irrevocable trust, you no longer own it. And, uh, and so it's not an asset of yours that's available to your creditors. An irrevoc a, a revocable trust, in the eyes of the law, when you convey an asset to a revocable or a living trust, you still own it. An irrevocable trust has its own tax ID number. It's a separate entity from the grantor. And, um, the, and over the years, estate planning lawyers have become very clever in making irrevocable trusts that aren't entirely irrevocable. Uh, <laughs> you can still change them in the decanting provisions and all kinds of things that allow us to, or trust protectors, uh, basically making your lawyer the trust protector, which means you can basically modify the terms of your trust at your instruction in the future. And, and so these, these sorts of provisions, so it's not as scary as it used to be, um, but they can protect your will because they protect you, they can protect, they can provide asset protection. They can't allow you to, you know, if, if, if I'm being sued by, by the bunch of people, I'm not going to be able to say, oh, I put all my assets in the irrevocable trust, not mine anymore, and <laughs> you, can't, you can't touch me. That would be a, that would be considered a, a fraudulent conveyance. Mm -hmm. But if you did it in advance because of other reasons, and then you got sued, that would not be a fraudulent conveyance. Mm -hmm. So it can protect your assets from potential creditors. It can provide anonymity. A lot of 
a lot of wealthy people or people who are, are well known in Florida use um, land trusts. Uh, and Florida, it had, you know, we have a law of Florida in the sunshine. Basically, everything about all of us is available online. You can, you know, go to the county tax records and see what all your neighbors paid for their houses and, and, um, and you know, everything is very public. Other states, not so much, but Florida is extremely public. In fact, California, I can never find anything in California, real estate records, but, but, uh, um, but Florida, you can find anything you want. I've had clients come in and ask me, why did you pay, why do you have such a cheap house? You know, they, they've already stalked me before they met me. <laughs> the, so it's annoying. And if I were a celebrity, if I were Tiger Woods or something like that, it would be really annoying because they can also find my address and show up in front of my house. So a lot of people use land trusts primarily for anonymity purposes. A land trust, the, all, the only thing it's identified to it's, you know, is the, typically it's the lawyer who's the trustee, the person's lawyer. So it'll say, you look up my address and or the address of my client for the land trust, and it'll say Spiro J. Barris, Esquire, uh, trustee of the ABC land trust. And it, it, so when you try and look at places like Worth Drive in Palm Beach, it's actually kind of fun to do. And I had to do it one time because I was trying to find a, a defendant. Um, every house is in a land trust. You can't find, you know, Rose Kennedy's house <laughs> on the Palm Beach County uh, property appraiser's website. And um, so that, that was an interesting, uh, that's, that's a way of providing anonymity. Estate taxes are, and it's become less of an issue because the current lifetime gift and estate tax exemption is $11.5 million for an individual, uh, double that for a married couple. So uh, that excludes 99.9 something percent of us on our deaths. We do not die that rich, but some people do. And uh, for, for my clients who, who will, it's, um, irrevocable trusts of a variety of natures provide the, the way, one of the key strategies for um, minimizing estate taxes. You can gift a certain amount every year, currently around $14,000 to an, an infinite number of individuals. Um, and, and you don't have to file an information return with the, uh, a gift tax return with the IRS. By doing that and using that to fund irrevocable trusts over time, you basically can deplete your assets mm -hmm. Um, and and uh, you can, they still go to your beneficiaries as you intended, but you can use the irrevocable nature of the trust and gifting to those trusts, among other strategies, to reduce your estate taxes. A will can't do any of these things. Got uh, it. Do, do you have to have um, an irrevocable trust for anonymity, or can a revocable trust also provide anonymity for you? Because, like, you don't like register your uh, sorry did I say well you don't register your trust anywhere well if you don't have if you don't have real estate uh, you can get some anonymity with a revocable trust because you don't have to name I don't have to name my trust the Spiro J. Barris revocable trust it can be called the you know Baba Duke trust or something like that um, but the problem is that uh, when you have real estate owned by the trust in addition to deeding the property to the trust is prudent and really a, a very wise to uh, record a certificate of trust in the public records. The reason that's, that's important is that say I have a son and he's my successor trustee. I title my home to my Babadook trust. <laughs> and then, uh, but I, that, that's great. 
But when I die, who's going to establish who my successor trustee is? So I usually record a certificate of trust that only contains the successor trust provisions, but it will have to say on uh, September 25th, 2020, Spiro Veris created the Babadook Trust with himself as initial trustee. The trust is currently in existence upon Spiro's death. His son becomes the trustee. That's great because when I die, my son can take a death certificate, record it in the official records, and he's the clear, he has a clear ability to sell the home. Um, but that, 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 that loses some of the anonymity. That's part of the problem. Land trusts are really the only flavor of trust that don't require that sort of a recording because you never identify the grantor of the land trust. And um, that's probably uh, for real estate purposes, the most anonymous. And that's really where the anonymity comes most into play because of the public nature of real estate records. You can't really look up to see where my Merrill Lynch accounts are, but my house, you can you know, Google me and there I am. Got it. Are land trusts irrevocable or revocable? They're, they're irrevocable, but because of the fact that the trustee has tremendous flexibility and it's usually the lawyer for the grantor, um, they, they can be decanted. So for example, um, if, I own, if I own a piece of real estate in a land trust and I sell it, my trustee is usually, I mean, uh, the way I prefer it, has the ability to decant the proceeds into a different trust or into any other entity he wants. So he can give it back to me. So even though the trust itself can't be revoked, uh, assets can be moved in and out. Got it. Okay, great. So um, what are what are estate planning considerations that uh, the following types of folks should be thinking about especially? So I, was, I had three sort of personas in mind, if you will. One is, you know, real estate rental property owners. A second is owners of family businesses or professional services practices like legal practices or medical practices. And a third is owners of very sizable stock holdings. Maybe they had company stock options, which is common in the tech industry, uh, for example. Uh, maybe there was a, the company had an IPO, et cetera, and they suddenly get a, a really big windfall. What are estate planning considerations that uh, these type of folks should be uh, thinking about? So uh, real estate uh, holder, real estate holdings are important. If you own rental real estate uh, in your own name, it creates liability problems. Uh, if there is an injury or an accident uh, on the premises, uh, the principle of premises liability would, would hold the owner liable. So um, owners get sued all the time because someone slipped and fell uh, on, on a piece of property. Obviously you can, you can deal with that to some degree with insurance, but for the most part, I recommend that people put their rental real estate into an, a separate entity that they then own, um, typically an LLC, simply because it's easier. And um, it's a, a bit of a hassle. You have to file an annual report. You may have to file a separate tax return for the LLC. But the protection that it provides is, is, is great because what it does is the LLC only owns that piece of real estate. So the most that a judgment creditor can get is that piece of real estate. They cannot get through the corporate veil and get any of your personal assets. So that's, that's usually what I recommend for, for rental property owners. I have a number of, uh, of clients who retired to Florida and bought like a strip shopping center, strip mall, with the proceeds of the business they sold up north. And uh, I recommend very strongly to those people that they put them in an LLC. Um, current owners of family businesses and professional services practices like mine um, are, uh, 
are, you know, it's a, it's a difficult situation. You obviously want it to be in some sort of a corporation. You do not want to be a sole proprietor of a business that has potential creditors. So if, if a lawyer um, makes a terrible error and gets sued, you know, the lawyer's liability um, should be limited to the, to the assets of his firm and not his personal assets. So that's, and doctors, and then everyone is the, is the same. Obviously, um, insurance is also important for that, and every, every professional should carry adequate liability insurance. But beyond that, when you have a family business, there's succession planning. Um, so you may want to establish in, say, the operating agreement of your LLC, Who's going to inherit if one of the members dies? I try to build that in. It avoids probate. It's, it's private. There's no public record of, of, of LLC operating agreements. So you can do a lot of estate planning for business owners using the corporate documents to allow for the succession of the business to, to the people you want to inherit it and excluding the people you don't want to inherit it. That, that's a, um, an important consideration. With regard to people with sizable stock holdings, uh, that, that's primarily more of a, of a, of a wealth and asset protection um, uh, consideration. There's no liability in the sense that the real estate owner and the business owner might be liable. I mean, if I own stock in, in, uh, in, in Apple, just because Apple gets sued, I'm not gonna get sued, uh, <laughs> the, I'm fine. But, um, but, but if I own a lot of stock in Apple and I get sued, then, you know, by, if you get sued by somebody else, they, they're going to go after that stock. That's where irrevocable trusts come into play. You may want to title your shares to an irrevocable trust that will go to your children, let's say, upon your death or, or disability. Um, you, you could do that. And um, there are tax, un, there's unfortunate tax consequences to that. Ta trusts are taxed at a higher rate than, than people. And irrevocable trusts are among those trusts that are taxed at a higher rate. Revocable trusts are not, that just flows onto your personal return, but irrevocable trusts are taxed tax worse. But the asset protection is, is great by placing assets of, you know, if you have substantial wealth, that's a consideration. Another consideration is placing that wealth in a family limited partnership or limited liability company. Um, and uh, that's a way of making your entire family actually uh, and their wealth protected from from their all, everybody's creditors, um, and it's a it's a very powerful tool. And I don't know if you want me to go into that, but it's a it's a very effective way. Well, I guess at a high level, I think what I'm taking away is that estate planning is more than just wills and trusts. It can start to touch upon things like corporate formation documents or governing documents, um, partnership documents, etc. Um, and uh, I, you know, just in that last scenario that you painted, I was just curious if um, you, how does one, how does in the family example you gave, how does that family create an LLC without having a business purpose? Like they're not say running a company, but they're just doing it for estate planning purposes. How does that actually work? And most of the time it's, it's for a company. You know, typically it's a family business and they put the business in the family limited liability partnership or now more common family limited liability company. Um, but it can be done with any asset. It doesn't necessarily have to be a business. And it has two, two, it has two benefits. One is, as I said, asset protection. So if I am a member of an LLC or a limited partner of a limited partnership, and I get sued and I get a judgment against me. The most that my creditor can get 
is a charging order against the LLC or limited partnership, which allows them to seize distributions made to me by the LLC. It, they stand in my place as a member with regard to distributions. They can't take my membership interest or my partnership interest. They can only get a charging order as to distributions. Well, there's no requirement the LLC make distributions or pay them out. They can keep them in. And that can have bad consequences for my creditor because they get taxed on my distributions, even if the distributions were not made. Mm. So they, they're going to get a 1099 or a K1 that um, is, is going to put them on the hook for the, for the distributions. It's a very powerful tool that wealthy families use for that reason, to protect all the kids and everything from, from creditors. With a typical family, family company, but also with just wealth, I mean, land or whatever, it all goes in there. Um, and uh, and uh, stock and bond holdings, the same asset protection is, is achieved. And in addition, the parents can start gifting membership interests or partnership interests to their children every year and their grandchildren. So that, and they, if, the, if those interests, which in the, if it's a company are deeply discounted over what the real value would be for that company, um, over time, much of their wealth will have shifted to the, to the children. And by the time the parents pass away, they will be under, let's say the 22 or $23 million lifetime gift and estate tax exemption for a married couple. It's very effective. Got it. And in that um, sort of slow amortization of shifting wealth from parents to children, that that can be accomplished um, outside of the reach of you know creditors, for example. And as we were discussing a moment ago, is that is that accurate? Absolutely. Whether you use irrevocable trusts to do it, or we use a family limited liability company or partnership. And so the the scenario of like the Apple stockholders has a bunch of Apple stock, they can create a limited partnership or a, an LLC it doesn't really have, it's not meant to conduct a, a business as such. It might have some ancillary revenue, such as from dividends, but uh, you could use that instrument. It sounds like for just the purpose of, um, uh, prote- you know, asset protection uh, and, you know, eventually maybe transferring your wealth to uh, family members uh even though it's not in itself a business. Is that correct? That's correct. There's no requirement that there be a business in that limited liability company. Have you found that in your past experience, clients who you know, transfer money into an irrevocable trust uh, is, a, is a, a common strategy to do that at the moment of death rather than during their lifetime? Well, Just so that they retain that control during their lifetime, but then at, at death, then immediately it pours over into an irrevocable trust? That doesn't get the asset protection that they would have had during their lifetimes if it had been an irrevocable trust. Hmm. But as a practical matter, every revocable trust becomes irrevocable on the death of the grantor. That's true. Yeah, so, so it doesn't get the asset protection due to the fraudulent conveyance rule or because that's just the way the law is? Well, because while it's revocable, it's considered your asset. So as long as you put assets into a revocable trust, the revocable trust is disregarded for asset protection purposes and tax purposes. But if you did, uh, if you poured over assets in your will into an irrevocable trust, it sounded like you were saying that doesn't actually accomplish asset protection. So that's interesting. So, so in the hypothetical, let's say I, I have a son. I'll use him as the example, and and I'm uh, instead of leaving to him outright, I'm leaving to an irrevocable trust that he's the beneficiary of. Yeah, because maybe my my goals are asset protection. And I want to avoid probate at the same time. 
So yeah, in that situation, um, you would still have to probe it. Well, so my irrevocable trust pours over into, an, I mean, uh, my revocable trust pours over into a new irrevocable trust for my son. Is that what's happening or am I? Or, or I, I assumed you could just pour directly from, you, I guess, using your will. So the will will have to be probated, but uh, upon your death, all the assets just go immediately into an irrevocable trust with no intermediate step. Is that possible? I assumed it was. No, not really. If I own them in my own name, they'll have to be probated. Um, and during the probate, my creditors can 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 attach them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. But of course, his creditors, if, I, if, the, if he's the beneficiary of an irrevocable trust, he would be protected from his creditors. So let's say, for example, my son has giant judgments against him, and I know that he's, you know, not going to pay them off. I could do that. I could say in my will, you know, my will can create a trust. We call testamentary trusts. So I can build a trust into my will and say, upon my death, all of this is going to go to the Spiro Jr. Uh, irrevocable trust, um, you know, with uh, Uncle Uncle Bob as the trustee. And, um, and so his creditors will not be able to touch that asset. He will be the beneficiary of a trust, but he'll never own the assets outright. And so that's an option that people do that actually frequently in their, in their wills when they have a child that has tremendous um, debt. Got it. Um, let me actually ask um, uh, a derivative of this, which is instead of doing a pour over, if somebody who is expecting death, um, you know, they don't know when, but they know it's coming soon, maybe because they're, uh, they're in hospice care or something like that. If they create an irrevocable trust prior to death um, and they, uh, transfer all their their assets in as long as they don't um, run afoul of any fraudulent conveyance rules that would would that allow them to accomplish the goal of you know main, uh, maintaining control and ownership during their lifetime but only shortly before death transferring everything for asset protection and um, avoiding probate purposes yes and that's not not uncommon I mean I've had people who uh, you know I had to go to the ICU uh, <laughs> to set up their trust uh, that, the, you know, they were, they wanted to get it set up and funded before they died, you know, so they're signing deeds, putting real estate in the trust. It, it happens. It happens. As long as it's not a fraudulent conveyance, there's no problem with doing that. Got it. Okay, great. So I'm um, wrapping up here. I, I would love to kind of get your quick thoughts. Maybe we can just treat these as quick hits. Um, of just to give folks a flavor of the type of estate planning instruments that might apply to different personas. There's lots of different types of trusts that you can create. As you mentioned, some are very common, others are more obscure. And what's right for you depends on what your estate planning goals are, your level of wealth, maybe even what state you live in. Um, and I was just kind of curious to get you know quick reactions on what are the types of trusts that you might potentially advise for you know high earners or high net worth individuals. Um, let's say you're advising the the following personas. So, like number one, number one would be an early retiree, thirty year old, married, no kids, say three million dollars net worth, and they're really just trying to accomplish wealth preservation and facilitating a smooth transition uh, if they pass. Uh, any any quick thoughts on you know um, likely appropriate trust instruments that would that would benefit them? Yeah, in this case, they're not concerned about what they pass on to the next generation. They're just focused on, I presume, asset protection during their lifetimes. So they could create an irrevocable trust, make themselves the beneficiary of it, and they will be provided for for you know the rest of their lives. And if their creditors would not be able to touch that that money, and um, if they wanted to make sure that those assets could pass smoothly to a spouse, 
they could they could both be beneficiaries of what you can do is a you know both they're both beneficiaries the grantor creates the trust there are two beneficiaries the spouse should be able to control get the money when 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 the, the grantor dies okay great uh second persona so a, like a high earning professional 40 years old married uh two kids dual income say both spouses are earning six figures maybe they have uh, half a dozen rental properties with mortgages still on them. Also, they have $3 million in net wealth when you net everything out. And maybe their estate planning goals are um, wealth preservation, asset you know, uh, protection. Uh, they would like to avoid probate and facilitate a smooth transition to their, their, their heirs or their, their beneficiaries if they pass. What, um, what are initial reactions on you know, what might be appropriate for this, this profile? So in this case, I think the, the, the typical solution would be a revocable trust, a joint revocable trust for the two of them. And I would make the trust the uh, sole member of LLCs to own each of the rental properties. Mm. And um, the, uh, I think that would achieve, they would avoid probate, they would have facilitated a smooth transition, and it would preserve their wealth from potential liability arising from the rental properties. Gotcha. All right, third persona, say a high-earning business owner, 40-year-old, married again, two young children. They own a successful family business, and their household income overall is now seven figures. Maybe their one spouse doesn't work. They have $10 million of net wealth and, a, say, a primary residence worth a million and a half. And their, their ownership stake in their sort of closely held family businesses is, is a liquid. Um, and their estate planning goals are you know, similar to the, um, the pre previous scenario, but they also want that business continuity. They'd like to avoid taxes as much as possible at death. Um, uh, and you know, just like providing income security for the non-working spouse in case it's the working spouse that gets hit by a bus. Hmm. So this is an interesting case. They're below the threshold for estate tax consideration, so that would not be an issue. Although politically, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, the pre it was the the estate tax exemption was recently doubled so um it could be halved in, in the future um the uh the given so putting aside estate tax considerations and i should add that many states have inheritance taxes and estate taxes of their own and you have to check at the the tax um situation in your own state florida has no inheritance or estate tax so our only concern here is federal taxes um the um uh, they own the closely held business, so the the um, uh, that um, and it's illiquid. So the that should probably be in a in a family limited partnership or family limited corporation. That would be a classic example. Um, it would be uh, and if state tax laws did change, it would be a great vehicle for minimizing their exposure there. Otherwise, I would see and it would also protect them from personal li liability arising from the business. Um, otherwise, I think I would, again, just use a revocable trust for this family and, um, uh, you know, entitle uh, uh, the assets other than the business to the trust. Got it. Okay, great. And the last person I have is, say, a 60-year-old married retiree, very large stock option windfall from their former company's IPO, two adult children, two grandchildren, $30 million in net wealth, half of it still in company stock, and a $7 million primary residence. So they're pretty doing pretty well. In this case, their estate planning goals really are wealth preservation and true tax minimization, providing income security for you know spouse, safety net for their children without encouraging dependency, I guess. Um, they want their children to <laughs> make an effort, but yeah. they also want to provide a safety net. Um, what might be appropriate, and I know this can start to get complicated, but at least any initial reactions? 
So there are a number of things you can use to reduce their estate tax liability. I would start with the residence. I think a qualified personal residence trust would make sense for this couple. It's a technique basically that you take, uh, use to take the, uh, take the, uh, uh, the, the house, if you have a very high value house out of the estate for estate tax purposes. The, um, the other thing that they might consider to sort of simplify things is uh, an islet, an irrevocable life insurance trust. It's a way uh, that you can actually prepay for your expected uh, estate tax exposure. The problem with life insurance is that it's, in, it's an estate asset, but an irrevocable life insurance trust, trust allows you to take life insurance out of the estate, not have it, because it can be self-defeating. If I try and get take out a life insurance policy to cover my estate tax liability, the proceeds of my life insurance policy add to my total uh, taxable estate, but not if you have an islet. So that might be a simple way to handle this uh, for this couple. The, um, the, uh, and that would also, uh, you could do it on first death possibly or partial payout to make sure that there's plenty of liquidity. With regard, I would again put them in a traditional trust. And this is an issue many of my high net worth people suffer from. What do you do to avoid making your kids, you know, not incentivized to work? The worst mistake that I've, that I've seen over the years is the monthly income approach, you know, or the annual income approach. If they're just getting $300,000 a year uh, from the trust, it is, you know, it's, it, it disincentivizes uh, hard work. What most people choose to do is an incremental payout of wealth um, or sometimes, and there's, they can kick the can down the road by basically not allowing the kids to get more than a certain amount and then giving the kids perhaps the power of appointment with regard to their share so they can decide what happens with their kids and let it go down the hill, go down down the estate because I frequently am involved in right I'm involved in some probate litigation right now involving a, a family that three generations ago had banking wealth from up, upstate New York and as the family has grown the amount that everybody gets has shrunk but it's still pretty substantial and nobody in this family has a job I mean <laughs> they <laughs> and all they all they're doing is fighting about what share they get over you know of, of the last person to die um, so it's a real problem and I, I prefer the chunk approach you know like when you turn 50 you're gonna get a million dollars or something like that uh, but rather than the I'm gonna provide income for the rest of your life approach troubling um, so, that, but it's a very personal decision. And I like to get the whole family involved, including the kids, uh, typically, so that everybody's on the same page about it. Because it's a generational, it's going to continue. Like, what do you do with the grandkids? If you have that amount of wealth, it's, it's, it's going to be a situation that you're dealing with for decades and decades to come. Got it. Any other potential techniques that might apply to this uh, scenario besides the qualified personal residence, the irrevocable life insurance, and um, uh, potentially the chunked approach? Yeah, there are um, there are grits and grats, uh, different types of irrevocable trusts, uh, your uh, grant to retain interest trusts, where basically you're you're creating an irrevocable trust but controlling what, what it's doing um, for the rest of your life, and uh, um, all of that. But we're not they're not rich enough that I would I would overcomplicate their lives with with irrevocable trusts. If it were an order of magnitude wealthier, you know, then perhaps. But this couple. The, even if they did nothing, the reason I said the islet, because even if they did nothing, their taxable estate would be $7 million. Hmm. Um, and, um, and if we did a cupert, it would be zero. Because uh, if the house is $7 million, we just, we just addressed it by putting it in the cupert. 
there were any excess, I would use an island. Because the problem with irrevocable trust is it does become kind of a management issue. Mm -hmm. I have a client who had their CPA handling all of their irrevocable trusts and, and, and he's now out of the picture and we're trying to figure out wh what's happening with all these irrevocable trusts. We don't have the records and it's, it's chaotic. And so it can become very complicated. I'd like to keep my clients' lives as simple as possible. And so for a $30 million wealth couple, I would do a Cupert and or an islet and uh, you know allow them to maintain some flexibility over their wealth and simplify their lives. Okay, perfect. Hey, Spiro, this has been um, uh, really informative, insightful, and a lot of fun. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your legal practice and services? Uh, thanks, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. You can, they can visit my website. It's uh, varuslaw.com. That's V-E-R-R-A-S hyphen L-A-W dot com. Okay, perfect. Uh, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And thanks so much again for taking the time to chat with us today. Look forward to sharing this with uh, all, of our, all of our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Take care. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, -step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.